my name is Neil, and together with my wife Kate, we attempt to serve this amazing community of faith here, Southwest London Vineyard. It's great to see you. If you're new or visiting, you're very, very welcome. You're all very welcome, but you're especially welcome if you're new or visiting. And if you are new or visiting, do come and find uh, one of us. Do speak to some of the welcome team. They've got these lovely lanyards on. We'd love to help connect you to whatever part of the body of Christ it is the Lord is calling you to, whether that's this one or wherever uh, that may be. Uh, we're going to round off our Advent series this morning as we're not able to gather together next week. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and we'll get to that in a minute. If you've been here over the last few weeks, you'll know that um, over the season of Advent in the lead up and the, in the run up to Christmas, each week we're kind of invited to turn our attention to what it means for Jesus, for the Messiah, to come into the world as Emmanuel, God with us. And during Advent, there's this invitation that goes out to each one of us from the Holy Spirit to slow down and to pause, you know, in this often sort of hurried and frenetic season and to take time to both remember on the one hand and to anticipate on the other. And we remember and we reflect back, we cast our minds back to what was prophesied and promised and realized in that first coming of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas. And at the same time, we, um, we anticipate, we look ahead to his return when Jesus comes again in glory to set everything aright. And over the four Sundays in Advent, traditionally the church looks at four things. It looks at hope and at peace and at joy and at love. Uh, and this morning we're going to be looking at joy, Advent joy. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius, Quirinius uh, I've been failing on that since I was about seven, was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room uh, available for them at the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, especially at this time of year, you should be, I imagine, very familiar with this story as you've been in back-to-back, especially those of you with children, back-to-back nativity uh, plays and productions over the last few weeks. But let's just focus on verse 10, really, which I think is the crux of this kind of passage, the crux of what the story is here. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Again, you'll be familiar with this fact that, you know, do not be afraid. It's the most common command in the whole of Scripture and the most common command in the Christmas story as well. And one way for us to think about our spiritual journey as followers of Jesus is to think of it in terms of it's sort of like a lessening of fear uh, and in its place a, a rising sense of trust and confidence in God. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Uh, Now, again, you'll be familiar with this, that that phrase, uh, good news, in the the Greek is where we get kind of words like evangelism, one of our favorite words, and evangelistic, another one of our favorite words, or gospel, or at Christmas time, it might be translated to sort of what we call glad tidings. And we can kind of look at the word gospel, you know, as if it were a little bit of a serious, um, you know, word, a a sort of heavy, deep, meaningful, theological word. But actually, in the first century, um, gospel, this this was like a happy word. It was a a happy word. It was a political word. But whenever a a new king uh, was born or a war was won or something sort of momentous happened, what would happen is the empire would send out like a herald or a preacher to preach the gospel, to spread the good news, to spread the glad tidings about whatever it was that had happened, about the birth of the king or the emperor or the defeat of an enemy or whatever it was. And that explains kind of the next line. It's, it's good news that causes great joy. And have a look here. Note this isn't just joy. This is great joy. And in fact, the, the Greek, in Greek, the, the literal word for great here is, um, is mega. Uh, we're talking about mega joy. This is a, for Manny, right? It's, it's a mega, mega joy. And it's that feeling that you kind of get, you know, when there's something that you've been waiting for, something you've been longing for, something you've been hoping for, and then suddenly, all of a, you know, all of a sudden, it comes to pass, out of the blue. It's that long-awaited gift that you really, 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 really hope you're going to get at Christmas. You get this 
mega joy. What you're going to feel in that moment is mega joy. It's something that courses through your whole body. And that's the point of this entire story. Here are these shepherds. And they're sitting and they're waiting. And, and scholars actually think that these shepherds were guarding this, this flock of sheep around Bethlehem, which is where the sheep uh, would have been raised for the Passover sacrifice in Jerusalem. And so their, their job effectively was to raise the sheep that would be the symbol that would look back to the Passover in the first exodus and look forward to the coming exodus and the new Moses and the new deliverer prophesied all the way throughout the Old Testament. And so, you know, we said this, we've said this over the last couple of weeks, along with the whole nation of Israel, these shepherds are waiting for the Messiah, the promised one to come. And then totally out of the blue comes this good news. And with that good news comes great joy, mega joy. And what is this good news? Let's have a look at verse 11. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is the good news, that the long-awaited Messiah has been born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet said that he would be uh, hundreds of years before. And to say that the Messiah, you know, the king, has come is another way of kind of saying that God's kingdom has broken through. God's kingdom, his rule and his reign, has also come. And so, just as an aside, I just want to take a little detour into what the coming of that kingdom means. What does the coming of the kingdom mean? You know, what is the gospel, if you like, of the kingdom that, you know, you'll hear us talk about so often here in the vineyard? What is that gospel of the kingdom according to the scriptures? Well, firstly, in the first, first century Jews would have divided history into kind of two ages. It would have been this present age and the age that is to come. And this present age would be one that is marked by the rule of the enemy. It was one of uh, an age of sin and of death and of pain and of suffering and a, an age of waiting and of yearning and of longing for God to come and to put the world to rights, to set the world and everything in it back to how things were originally intended to be back in Genesis chapter 2. Whereas the age to come is the age in the future, and this is going to be an age marked by the rule and the reign of God, the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. It would be a time of peace and prosperity and shalom, these things we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. And it would be a time for peace and prosperity and shalom for everyone. It was to be, as Isaiah said um, of those in the age to come in Isaiah chapter 51, he writes this, everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. These are the tokens, these are the hallmarks, the characteristics, if you like, of the age to come. And the first century Jews were waiting for the Messiah, or the Greek word would be waiting for the Christ. Uh, but both, both Christ and Messiah, these are words for a coming king, the coming king who would usher in the age to come, who would lead humanity into its next epoch, if you like, who would bring us all into the kingdom of God. 
Second thing is that Jesus is that long-awaited king. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and he has come to usher in the kingdom of God and to make that kingdom and all that comes with it available to all of us. Note that word in verse 10, good news that will cause great joy for all people, for all people. And while that word all may not mean and may not have very much impact for us today, if you were a first century Jew, that word all would have been pretty shocking. It's like, hold on a second, you mean, you can't possibly mean all people. I, I mean, like Gentiles? Do you mean, you mean Gentiles too? Uh, you, you mean all the people who are unclean, all those people who are uh, non-Torah observant? You know, and we may uh, find ourselves today thinking about that word all when we say to ourselves, you can't possibly mean all people. I mean, all people like me, but you can't possibly mean all people like them, surely. So it's not just for the Jews, it's not just the well-connected, it's not just the people who are good, but all, and all those who, using Jesus' language from later on in the Gospels, all those who repent and believe, and to unpack that idea of repentance and believing a little, it's all those who will be willing to rethink everything that they think they know about what it is that's going to lead them into fullness of life and abundance of life. And instead, instead of trying to do that on their own and in their own strength, actually putting their trust in Jesus and surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ and becoming his followers and then walking with him and journeying with him through the ups and downs of life. And then thirdly, uh, the kingdom of God is both the now and the not yet. Again, you'll hear that all the time around here. You know, the now and the not yet. And Again, uh, most of the Jews in the first century would have been expecting sort of like a clean-cut, clear line of demarcation between this present age and the age to come. But what actually happened uh, was a surprise, as it often is uh, with God. Um, and so at Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection and ascension, what happened is all of those things, all of that activity around Jesus the Messiah, it dragged into the present age. It dragged the future age into this present age. It dragged, it brought the age to come into this current age. Jesus sort of like opens up this window into this coming world and, and creates a, an opportunity and a way for us to live under God's rule and God's reign now as an advanced sign, if you like, as an advanced token of what was yet to come for the whole world when Jesus returns and brings the kingdom in all its fullness. And, and, and that, by the way, that's the calling of the church. That's what this is. Uh, you see, he's brought us together as the church to act as the vanguard, if you like, to, to lead the way. We are to be the ones who lead the way into the coming rule and reign of God that is coming one day for the whole world. We're the, we're the first bit of it. And so what that means is that um, we live in this time that is, is, is in between. It's between the times. Um, it's this kind of um, messy middle bit between his first coming 
and his second coming, between his first coming when Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God and established his church, and then his second coming when he will return and bring the kingdom of God to its climax and its fulfillment over the whole world. And contrary to what we might think, Advent actually has always traditionally been less about Jesus' first coming and is actually, you know, what we call Christmas, uh, and is actually far more about Jesus' second coming, or what we um, tentatively and hesitantly call judgment. Now, um, judgment, we just need to get um, around that a little bit. Judgment, rather than seeing judgment as a bad word, um, we really need to recognize that judgment, when it's talking about Jesus coming to judge the living and the dead, is actually a really good thing. It's a good word. It's a great thing. Because what it means is justice. A coming day of justice and peace for all. And in a, in a very real sense, you know, uh, the Christian community, we live, we should live, actually, in Advent all the time. This season, these four weeks, should remind us because they're the place that we actually find ourselves in all of the time, all year round. Um, it can well be called uh, the time between because as the people of God, we live in this time uh, between the first coming of Jesus uh, where Jesus came incognito in a stable in Bethlehem and his second coming when Jesus will return and come in glory to judge the living and the dead, to bring and to pour out his justice on the whole world. We're in this in-between time. As it says in Colossians 3, our, our lives in this moment are hidden with Christ in God. When, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. Uh, one writer put it like this about Advent and said, Advent contains within itself the crucial balance of the now and not yet that our faith requires. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering and pain that characterize life in this present world are held in dynamic tension with the promise of the future glory that is yet to come. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. In that Advent tension, the church lives its life. Um, it's this dynamic tension between sorrow on the one hand and joy on the other. We, we live our lives together with Jesus because, you know, we live in this age because we know, we, because we live in this age, we, we feel and we experience sorrow. That's a reality. But because we also live with at least one foot, if not more, in the not yet, you know, in the age to come, you know, what we do is we live on earth, and in a sense, we also live in heaven. We're in, we're in between. We kind of straddle these two places, because although we're here in this present age, we're here in this present age living under the rule and the reign of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so, therefore, we experience joy and all the fullness of the future age in the present. And so it's not sorrow or joy, but sorrow and joy. And the more that we mature in Jesus Christ, the more we enlarge and expand our capacity to hold both those things and both of those experiences in tension. Now, uh, you may ask, if all of that's true, 
uh, you know, not just some nice idea. Um, why am I not experiencing joy? Or why am I not experiencing more joy? I'm a follower of Jesus, and so I, I, I straddle these two. I live, yes, I recognize I live in this present age with all of its evil and suffering and misery and woe and all that kind of stuff, but I also live in this future age, and so why am I not experiencing more joy? I want more of the age to come in my life and experience and less of the present age. Does that make sense? You know, and the reality is a lot of people right now, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, are not experiencing joy. You know, it's a bit like what we said um, last week about um, peace. So I just want to end with some uh, closing thoughts about joy, if I may. And first of all, like we said uh, last week and the week before, actually, our relationship with joy, um, as indeed it is with hope and peace, and if we had an opportunity to gather together next week, would be same, the same would be true about love, is that our relationship with these things is not just passive, it's active. Uh, joy isn't just something that we feel. Uh, joy is something we choose. Henry Nouwen puts it like this. Joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every single day. Or here's uh, Richard Foster from his famous Celebration of Discipline. The decision to set the mind on the higher things of life is an act of the will. That is why joy is a discipline. It's not something that falls on our heads. It's the result of a consciously chosen way of thinking and living. Okay, that's all great, all well and good, but how do we do that? How do we choose joy? Turn with me to Philippians chapter uh, 4, and we'll uh, look at a few verses from there. And this has probably got to be like the best how-to text in the scripture on kind of how to grow and mature in joy. And like most of Paul's writings, Philippians is framed around what theologians call um, the indicative imperative. Uh, um, and what that basically means, the first part of his discourse is uh, indicative, and it's all about what God has done for us in and through Christ. And then once he's kind of got through the indicative bit, he moves on to the imperative bit, which is full of, um, surprise, imperatives or popularly commands um, on how we as disciples of Jesus are actually to live into what God has done for us in Christ as expressed through the indicative, if that all makes sense. This is Philippians verse, um, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. And these verses really are, they're kind of like a bit of a tutorial um, on joy from Paul, and I just want to break it down into three um, parts that may help us 
as we seek to be more intentional and choose joy over these coming weeks and months. The first thing is um, give thanks. Have a look at verse six. Uh, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. According to Paul, it's by practicing gratitude, practicing thanksgiving that we grow in our faith, that we grow in our trust of God. But um, gratitude is so uh, much more of a posture before it is a kind of practice, if that makes sense. You know, it's that heart posture that we have where we are actually willing to receive the life that we have as a gift from God, the creator, rather than kind of grasping for it as a right, if that makes sense. But it's also a practice that we cultivate. And and we become people, I think, of greater joy just by doing a couple of things. And, And these two things are ritual on the one hand and redirection on the other. Uh, ritual is, is really simply about finding ways to bring and to incorporate gratitude and thanksgiving into our daily lives and into our daily, uh, no, into our weeks. <laughs> you can't have a daily week. Um, our daily lives and our weekly lives and our monthly lives and our yearly lives. And it may be just as simple as creating a ritual whereby we just start every single day with a really, really short prayer of gratitude, of thanksgiving, just thanking God for everything or anything that we can find that's good in our lives. And then there's this thing about redirection. So you've got ritual on the one hand and redirection on the other. You know, when those thoughts come to us at you know, how, how bad things are, how bad our lot is in life, how hard our lives are or unfair or whatever it is they may be, which if we're honest, those thoughts come to us on a regular basis. The invitation in that moment is for us to redirect our focus and our attention onto what we're grateful for. So, for example, it's just an example I came up with out of nowhere. You know, when you find yourself sitting here, halfway through a dull sermon, and you notice again the icicles forming on your nostrils, and you're bemoaning the fact that Neil said some months ago that the 1st of December, he promised on the 1st of December the heating would be fixed. He he promised that uh, before Christmas we would all be bathed in a warm glow and it's not come to pass. So, you know, you're, you would be right to think how miserable your lot is in life and how cold you are and how you can no longer feel your toes or your fingers. However, the invitation from the Spirit of God in that moment is to redirect your thoughts and to say, uh, I'm so grateful to the Lord that I am wearing a coat and gloves and scarves and hats and Actually, do you know what? It's a little bit chilly in here, but you know what? The warmth of the fellowship outweighs all of that. It's such a joy and such a privilege to be part of a community of faith like this. We don't need heating. 
I'm just preparing you for the for next year. <laughs> it's January. We're praying for a warm, mild winter. Uh, I I am I am hopeful uh, that in the two or three weeks of our absence, miracles will happen. There's indications of something going on here. I don't know if that's actually um, a professional piece of installation or just a bit of dangling cable, but maybe we can just, maybe it's extensions that we can just plug heaters into, or I, I don't know. Anyway, I am getting sidetracked. I am redirecting. So ritual and redirection. Uh, but gratitude, honestly, gratitude is perhaps now more needed than ever. So first of all, um, let's give thanks. Second, uh, draw near to God in prayer. Have a look at verses five and six. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, present your requests before God. The Lord is near. God is near. Jesus is near. And so the invitation is to go to God in prayer and take all of our anxiety to him, to God. The main source of our joy is always, always going to be our proximity to God himself who, according to the Bible, is the most joyful being in the universe. Karl Barth, uh, the Swiss uh, theologian, speaking of the Trinity, said this, the triune being and life is radiant, and what it radiates is joy. At the center of the Trinity, at the center of all reality, is life-giving joy. Or in the language of Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Joy is, emanates from God's presence. This is C.S. Lewis. Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. This is particularly pertinent to us. If you want to get warm... You must stand near the fire. If you want to get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great foundation of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you'll remain dry. Meaning his formula for joy was basically get close to the source of joy itself, the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we experience this joy by living in God's presence and for God's pleasure. The Lord is near. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, as it says in James. And then lastly, um, think about what you think about. Think about what you think about. Have a look at verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Any of you with children, teach your children this verse. Think about what you think 
about. Um, and if you look at Paul's list of the things that we are to fill our minds with, uh, it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to work out that they're actually the very opposite of the things that most naturally fill most of our minds. Uh, John Milton in Paradise Lost wrote this, said, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. What we give our attention to, what we think about on a regular basis, what we fill our mind with has the potential to direct our lives either towards heaven or towards hell. It's as simple as that. And as followers of Jesus, the invitation from the Spirit of God is to direct our minds, direct our thought lives, to focus on the goodness of our life with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. And kind of, you know, that's it. I mean, it really is very simple in Paul's mind. It, really, the, the invitation is just slow down for long enough. And over this Advent season, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to redouble our efforts, to slow down, to be counter-cultural, to not get caught up in all of the noise and the frenetic chaos that comes with itself around Christmas, to slow down to, for just long, long enough to, to let go of the life that we wished we had. Slow down for long enough to just let go of the life that we wish we had so that we can receive as a gift the life that we actually have from him. And then we give thanks. We draw near to God and we think about what we think about. And as we do this over and over again through um, ritual and redirection, in time we will experience what Paul calls the renewal of our minds. We will become people with new minds. We will become people with the mind of Christ. We will become people for whom joy is our foundation. Will we be happy all the time? Absolutely not. We're only human after all. Uh, we are fragile and we live in this present age. We live in a world that is full of pain and sorrow and suffering. So will we be happy all the time? No. But joy will be the default setting of the person that we're becoming in Christ. And, and that is the good news given to the shepherds that first Christmas. This is the, this is the good news that causes great joy for all people. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord.